Welcome to another episode of the CC Podcast Conversations, where inspiring Christians share their faith-filled stories. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. This helps push our content to a broader audience. Are you new to listening? Check out our other podcasts. First, the CC Podcast Daily Dose Devotions, where we're walking through the Bible, focusing on short clips of Scripture. Second is the CC Broadcast, where our weekly radio programming is archived. These podcasts are available wherever you're listening or at christiancrusaders.org. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Here's our host, Matt Reister, the Executive Director of Christian Crusaders. What's up, Andrew? How you doing? Good, Matt. How are you? We've got a great interview today with Mac and Selah. Actually, that's not their real names, and I wish I could say their real names right now because many of you, especially who are in the northeast Iowa area, would recognize their names. These are long-term missionaries, a couple, doctor and an engineer who have been in Nepal, and now they're in northern India, uh, but they want to have their names protected. Yeah, and and two great people, uh, like like you said, Matt, uh, really well known in the area still have family in the area a lot of connections in the area uh she was my personal doctor um when when she was uh, in between um, um being in nepal and india uh just such great people and and what a wonderful story i mean absolutely wonderful story that they have um just talking through uh how they got into missions uh how they how the lord led them to uh where they went and, and some of the things that they've gone through uh, just incredible absolutely incredible so one of the things I remember from the interview, and you're going to hear this for yourself in a little bit, but when Sela was a doctor in Nepal, I mean, they were out in the sticks. I think she said they were eight hours from the nearest hospital, yeah. something mm-hmm. crazy like that. And you can imagine if there's a doctor and you're eight hours from the nearest hospital, you're getting anything and everything just coming to your doorstep. And that actually happened. Yeah. She talked about one night somebody came to get her because somebody was having a tough time with a pregnancy. And so they walked to where the other people were at. I was like, how's long, how long was that three hour walk? Mm-hmm. So six hour round trip for the dude that came to get her yep. and a six hour round trip for her to go and then come back. Right. And that was just not that rare. No. And, and, yeah. Those, those kinds of stories. And then I love this stuff. Um, you know, they tell one towards the end, uh, about a guy who had, uh, read something related to Jesus, uh, and, and had kept it bouncing around in his head for 17 years. Uh, and then came back and 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 identified them as as people who might know Jesus, might be Christians, and and brought it up with them. And just the way that that God has worked through them, just story after story, just fascinating stuff, just great stuff. And I think one of the things I appreciate about these two is there are quote unquote missionaries who are really more in it for the humanitarian side, yeah. uh, and never really get to the gospel. Right. But it is truly in their heart to use their gifts as doctor or medical professional or an engineer, or now they're kind of acting as grandparents yeah, for right. another mission family mm-hmm. to use those gifts or those roles for the sake of making connections with people, typically Muslim people right. in parts of the world that are not reached or penetrated much by the gospel Very hostile. Yep. for the sake of, uh, pointing people to Jesus Christ. And so to a degree, I, I hope that every one of us sees ourselves or evaluates ourselves and go, okay, maybe I'm not called to do that, that Mac and Selah did, but what am I called to do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of helping people know Christ? And uh, I think that'll be one of the takeaways from this. Yeah. And piggybacking off of that, towards the beginning, uh, we have Johannes, uh, who is is going to 
uh, talk through her, her uh, perspectives um, class. And, and that's great information as a, as a lead into what Mac and Sayla have to say. Um, and, and we're going to have some information about that class in the show notes too, I think. So um, good stuff uh, for anybody. Uh, like you said, anybody who wants to, to get involved or, or who, who should get involved, um, you know, you're going to hear something uh, that's, that's really going to help you kind of move that forward. For those of you who recognize who Mac and Sayla are, I think you should go out of your way to continue to call them Mac and Sale. If they don't want to use their real names, well, they're stuck with their <laughs> fake names. So <laughs> enjoy the interview with Mac and Sale, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the CC Podcast Conversations. Matt Reister here, and today I've got some very special guests. Known them for a long time. We're going to call them Mac and Sayla today. Those aren't their real names because they're missionaries, and we're going to use a different name for them. And so we'll learn more of their story here in a second. I've also got Jill Hannes, and Jill Hannes is a woman from Cedar Falls, Iowa, spent her life in the corporate world career-wise, and we're going to hear some of her story. Today, one of the meta-narratives or one of the smaller themes is going to be a curriculum called Perspectives of the Christian World. Perspectives is a 12-week course. Is that right, Jill? 15. 15-week course. Pretty intense. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe it in a couple sentences? Uh, well, Perspectives is often called a missions class, but we try and it's really not. It's really a more of a discipleship class. Uh, so perspectives really uh, helps us be more aware of God's purposes and what his mission is and how he wants each of us to engage in his mission. And so that's really what discipleship is all about. I took perspectives. I don't know how long ago it's been now, uh, mostly because you were recruiting me to take <laughs> I was persistent. Yeah. <laughs> I took that class and learned a ton, developed the way I think about what missions is, what cross-cultural ministry looks like. My wife and I welcomed. There are many roles that you can play. Mm -hmm. We decided that the Lord was maybe calling us to welcome. We have a bunch mm -hmm. of international students in the Cedar Valley who are at the University of Northern Iowa. We, we were blessed to get to know a young couple from Saudi Arabia. I remember when they came to our house the first time, and we met, and they introduced us to their son's name was Osama. Mm. I was like, wait a minute here. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> of course, that's a common name. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we fell in love with them. We were able to interact with them for a couple years. Uh, they're back in Saudi Arabia. We've lost touch with them. And I don't know exactly what the fruit of that was, other than they got to spend some time every month with a Christian family. We were pretty open about our faith. We had some great conversations about spiritual things. Um, I'm not sure if they have a clear understanding of the gospel after those two years. And I certainly don't know where they're at with Christ. Mm -hmm. But maybe that time for me and for us was for us to grow mm -hmm. uh, more than... I, I don't know what the Lord did with that. Mm -hmm. What kind of experiences have you had along those lines? Uh, well, I think that what you said about you don't know what the fruit was is very important. Um, in in perspectives on the world Christian movement, we really learn what it means to be a world Christian. And some people think that means you got to go somewhere. But you just pointed out that being a welcomer to people who come to us, especially international students, is a huge part. And when you do that, just like you said, you don't know 
whether they went home with a seed planted or not. But likely they did. Likely those conversations were some seed that maybe down the road someone else will help water and nourish. And, and you may never know, but, but your work could have planted that seed. So I think that's really important as we welcome internationals that uh, we're not there to, to know that they're going to come into the kingdom in the two years that they're here in our neighborhood. But at least we do what we can do while they're here. Yeah, so. that's for good. Sure, for sure you broke their characterization of what mm-hmm. a Christian is. I mean, um, what he would be hearing at home mm-hmm. about what the Christian is, is is what you see on TV and, mm-hmm. and in the movies. And here he had an experience with a real family, a Christian family, that uh, I'm sure just broke that mold, and that's really a great purpose. When, when you say a character, characterization of what a Christian is based on what they see in the movies, etc., are you talking about just kind of a hypocritical, lewd, yeah, it's yeah. loose uh, morals, mm-hmm. uh, not honest, and all the things that go along with not being really serious about uh, who God is and, and your faith in Him. Yeah. I remember we had several conversations about the character of Americans. Mm-hmm. And I remember a conversation where their assumption was, when, when I told them that I believe 10%-ish of Americans are truly following Christ, I mean, they were shocked by that. Know, sure they just assumed do. it was 95-plus percent of Americans, and then some people that immigrated from Iraq who are Muslim and some from here that are a different religion, but they just assumed this is, 90, this is what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, many internationals believe that all Americans are Christians. It's, it's almost like it is part of the American culture is you are a Christian. And so when they watch American movies— and they see how people are behaving on movies, they view that as this is how Christians yeah. behave. And so by by welcoming people into our homes and letting them see how we live, we help, help dispel that, you know, what you see in the movies is not the average Christian life. Yeah. Uh, and so it is so important that we let internationals see true America, at least cr- true Christian America when they're here, instead of just what they see in the secular world. So we talk about welcoming. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I remember this from perspective. <laughs> you can pray. Yes. So support God's work in yes. cross-cultural ministry mm-hmm. and among the nations mm-hmm. through prayer. Yep. Uh, you can send. Yes. And that would be to help finance people who are going, right? That's, that's part of being a sender is is providing financial support. But it, it can also be just simple logistic things. When somebody's back on a home leave, loaning them a car or a place to live, uh, uh, sending emails and, and encouragement. letters. Encouragement. Yeah. So financial support certainly one of them, but it's not the only way you can be a sender. Welcome. That's yes. kind of what we've been mm-hmm. talking about. A ton of internationals coming to the United States. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. so there's a huge uh, harvest mm-hmm. that could be had just yeah. by sitting in your mm-hmm. house and being a little strategic about yeah. how you can welcome. Mm-hmm. And then go. Is, is that the only four? There, there's two more. Tell uh, well, number one is learn. I mean, the most important thing you can do foundationally is just learn what God's, God's doing in the world. And so that's one way Perspectives on the World Christian Movement class comes in. It helps people learn. And then another one is mobilize. Not a word that we use a lot. But it's what, you know, we're kind of doing right now. It's what uh, those of us who help bring perspectives classes to uh, different cities, we're mobilizers. We're helping other people join in God's mission. That's great. Um, So perspectives, we're going to get to Mac and Sayla's story here. 
but just a couple more seconds on perspectives. Mm -hmm. If you're an audience member in the Cedar Falls, Waterloo, Iowa area, there's going to be a class coming up. Mm -hmm. There's something you said in the Quad Cities. And then there's classes like this yeah. all over the country yeah. and all over the world, really. Yeah. yeah. How, do, how do we find that well, out? Well, there's hundreds of classes in the U.S. every year. Uh, most of them are either in the fall semester or the spring semester. Uh, you can find classes at perspectives.org. Just click on the classes link and you can find a class near you. If you don't find one this semester, check back next semester. In Cedar Falls, Waterloo, as as well as in Moline, Illinois, there are classes that start on August 22nd. Cool. That's great stuff. And Jill, you're going to stay with us. We might have you chime in on some of this mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, perspectives, as I learned a little bit of Mac and Sayla's story, was uh, a instrumental factor in you going back to the mission field after having been on the mission field in the 80s and 90s and then having come home with your family not really expecting that you would maybe go back out again so this is uh, a long and very interesting story and so let's just start with the two of you uh, born raised went to college somehow developed a heart for missions ended up on the mission field had a family, came back. Now you're headed back out, except you're in America right now. Mm -hmm. uh, just start at the beginning and and tell your story, and I might interrupt you and 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 kind of probe a little bit deeper. Well, I was born into a family of believers, and that was a great blessing and privilege in my life. Who brought me to church? Who read the scriptures with me every day? And um, I also had a set of uncles and aunts, two sets, uh, that were missionaries in the Philippines and in Japan. And while I was in grade school, they would come home and they would talk about the fact that people have never heard the name of Jesus and people need a lot of economic help and resources and development. And so um, I felt the Holy Spirit even calling me to missions at that time. I thought, there's so much available in the U.S., but um, God wants to use us to help make Jesus known overseas. And then, like, into my junior high, high school, there was a singer named Keith Green who just preached over and over and over, you know, if you are not called to stay home, you need to be considering going overseas. So let me just expound on that a little bit. He was saying there's a lot of people who say, oh, I need to pray to see if the Lord would call me to missions. And he's kind of flipping that and saying, uh, why don't you pray and see if the Lord wants you to stay home? Because if he... <laughs> There, there's another way to look at this. Exactly, because um, in the Word we, we have some directives from Jesus, uh, and so we can know that he wants us to be part of sharing who Jesus is. So I also felt drawn to medical work because my mom had cancer when I was in uh, elementary school, and she would talk about the, the doctor at Mayo Clinic who prayed with her before her surgery and how that impacted her healing and her her, her mental and spiritual state. So all those things combined to make me want to do medical missions, and um, I just kept following that pathway, getting ready for college and my studies at um, Wartburg and then University of Iowa. So I met Mac, who was also interested in missions. Yeah. Um, my uh, story isn't quite so as direct as, as uh, Sayla's. I... Uh, I also had a cousin who was a missionary in, in Nigeria when I was growing up, and, and he would come back 
home uh, every once in a while, and we just have a good time together. And so uh, junior high, I would put my pennies together and send it over to Nigeria for him to get a motorcycle and just kept involved that way. My whole family actually, though, was impacted by uh, his ministry because uh, we would have African uh, men come and stay with us. Uh, they were maybe here for seminary or whatever kind of training. And uh, during the holidays, then our family would have them come and stay. And, and by that time, I was in engineering school at uh, Michigan State. And uh, when they found that out, they said, you've got to come to Africa after you graduate. We need engineers uh, in, our, in our different countries around Africa. Did that change your image of a missionary when you heard that? Um, or did you know that? Yeah, whether it was, you mean, the, other than being a, a pastor uh, to go as a missionary? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know if it did change me. I, I guess maybe it would have had some impact because my cousin was a pastor. Kind of broadened your horizons a little. Yeah, it did. It did. That even I should be uh, open to yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so uh, so we'd have those guys, and yeah, they'd, they'd uh, encourage me to uh, to to come back, but... Actually, when I graduated, then I came out to Iowa and uh, worked in industry uh, instead. Um, but uh, out here at Iowa, I, I was a part of a church where I then met Selah. And uh, we were dating and uh, and finding out more and more about each other and, and realized that it wasn't an accident, that we both had um, a family members that were in mission and also that we were also personally uh, impacted by that. So, So yeah. you meet each other. You see that you both have kind of a missions background, at mm-hmm. least in your pedigree, your family influences. I remember you saying that she may, maybe felt a call a little bit earlier, like you wanted to be a missionary. You went into medicine for the purpose yes. right. of, mm-hmm. of one day going to missions. You weren't quite there. No, no. I found out that it could be used in mission after you know I was already in. So know, give us some dates on the timeline, like... When is when did you meet and get married, and then when did you finally go to the mission field for oh, the first yeah, time? Right. I came out in 1976 mm-hmm. um, to Iowa, and then uh, we uh, were married in 1980, and we went to Nepal in 1989. So. Yeah, so we met when um, I was actually my last year of high school, and then married while I was in undergraduate school. And so then, you know, we had a long wait because then I had to do medical school and then I had to do my residency. She had this college grad dating a high school senior. Yikes! Uh, what did Hans? What, what, what? Hans was yeah worried because he knew that she wanted to do medical school and uh, maybe she's and not so going to go to medical school after all. Yeah, yeah. But let me say this: we came out of medical school debt free. Yeah, I mean, so that was my, a blessing. My career That's allowed awesome. us to to do that. So when she was done with her residency, we were ready to to leave the country. Yeah. And uh, then we just talked to our pastor and was asking his recommendations on like who should we maybe consider going with? And in terms of a sending agency mm-hmm. or a sending organization. Or, yeah, who yes. can use our skills. Yeah, and of course the church was going to be behind us, but um, we we talked to the World Mission Prayer League and that was a great blessing because they are it's like a huge family that really is concerned for the evangelism of the world and wants people to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Um, 
So it was a blessing to meet them, and then they offered us opportunities in Nepal or Bangladesh or Pakistan, but it was really good because they had engineering going on in Nepal. So we felt that was God leading in that way. Who was the pastor whose advice you sought? Pastor Larson. Homer Larson. Homer That's Larson. what I thought. Yeah. So to tie this back for our listeners who don't know the dots being connected here, Homer Larson was the radio preacher on Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet yeah. Ministry, yeah. which this podcast is affiliated with, that we come under that umbrella. And uh, he was a radio preacher on here, I think, for 50, 52 years, something like that. And so, uh, Homer, and you were Homer's doctor, I believe. Yes. <laughs> In fact, this is just a, a little side note, and we won't get into any HIPAA things. Um, but Homer's very last sermon, I was, I was just looking at this because the guy who replaced Steve Kramer as the associate preacher when Steve Kramer moved up to be the main preacher after Homer retired, if you can follow that, uh, just retired this last week, Lee Lavig. Mm-hmm. And so I was out in Spencer saying a few words of thanks to him at his retirement party, and we connected some of these dots. I went back and listened to Lee's very first message, which would have been right after Homer's very last message. And his last message was titled, I'm Ready to Die. And he, in that message, talks about a conversation he had with his doctor. I don't know if it was you or a different doctor, about just you need to look at some of these tests and these things to kind of, you got some issues and he didn't get into details about what they were, but uh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to, the full circle, right, mm-hmm. of him influencing. So did Homer point you to Wimple? Yes, yeah, he, he did. Sure did. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> and I won't get into that any further, but that's awesome. You, right after you finished your residency, Went to the mission field? Yes, we did one semester of Bible college at the Lutheran Bible Institute in Seattle uh, that the mission asked us to do, which was a great foundation since they knew we wouldn't have pastors pastoring us over there. We have to be able to dive into the word well ourselves. Is Wimple denominational or non-denominational? It's Lutheran, but not any particular Lutheran. So there's all different uh, Lutherans. And very evangelistic. Oh, yeah. Very grounded in the word. Yes. Good on the gospel. Yes. Let let me talk about that a little bit. Um, Some people listening to this might be like, why do we even need to tell people about Jesus? I mean, if if you listen, honestly, I'm pretty frustrated with this right now in American Christianity. If you listen to a lot of it, it's very universalistic. It's very much God is love. God would never send anyone to hell. God is compassionate. Uh, Love Wins was a popular book that was written to kind of promote this universalistic idea. Uh, Why does people knowing Jesus matter? Scripture tells us there's no other way, there's no other name given among men that we might be saved. Um, Scripture is so clear that we need to tell people, that we need to get out there and and, uh, witness to what Christ has done for us and so that they might also know him. Mm-hmm. If you take any of these other views, somehow that dampens your your uh, uh, initiative in helping other people know about Christ. Somehow, you know, those things kind of destroy. So you can see that they're used by the devil. Yeah, um, it denies the authority of Scripture. Really, if we take any other view, because Jesus was so clear on the, the message he gave us to his disciples and all of his followers, really, about how he wants to use. His people in the mysterious way to share his truth yep. and his forgiveness and his yep. grace. We yep. need forgiveness. 
Amen. Yeah. It's, it's been amazing. So we've got a podcast uh, that we do in conjunction with this called the Daily Dose Devotions. It's a daily Bible overview right now. We're just getting to the end of the Old Testament. As I was telling you beforehand, it's been so good for me. I've, I've been pretty familiar with some of the Old Testament. I haven't been very familiar with all the Old Testament. I know I was supposed to read through the entire Bible for a seminary class, which I did, but it was kind of like, let's just grind this out. Yeah, I'm not right. even paying attention to what I'm reading. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. just reading words. Uh, and I never put the time in to understand it like I have over the last year and a half or so while we've been doing this. Um, But you've got this idea that comes over and over and over in the Old Testament of the wrath of God against sin. And um, I heard a message a while ago that stuck with me and that, you know, God is a God of love and compassion. and He's not a God of wrath. You need to let go of that idea of God being angry about sin and embrace God is a compassionate, loving, gracious God. And, and I mean, that's just not biblical. The, mm-hmm. You said, Selah, that uh, we compromise the authority of Scripture when we think like that. So if God is a God of wrath against sin, and I mean, goodness gracious, read Zechariah. Read the prophets that we're in right now. <laughs> All of the prophets. <laughs> uh, he punishes sin fiercely, and it's good because he's a holy God, and he can't be in a in a... In the presence of sin, he can't let sin go unpunished. If he did, it would compromise his character. And uh, and so this needs to be dealt with. Now, obviously, the good news is is that he provides the solution to the problem, and, and that's in Christ. He's sending his prophets, right? Those prophets are the ones that he's sending. He's not leaving his people uh, in their sin. He right? is, he's doing, he's a redeeming, he's a rescuing God, even in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he will stop at nothing to make sure that they know, they know him and uh, they, they know that, um, that he is for them. He's, he'll do anything he can for them. And then Jesus comes and, and shows us exactly how that does it all. That works it out. Yeah. Another thing that I've learned through the Old Testament is, you know, when we're very familiar with New Testament, a lot of Christians are. I mean, we spend all of our time in the New Testament. You know, going through this Bible overview made me kind of wonder, why do we hand out only New Testaments? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not cool. Mm-mm. I mean, if I have 10 minutes with a guy and only one thing to recommend, I'll probably recommend the book of John, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that we should, I mean, really, we want them in all of Scripture. Um, when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, the Pharisees are still thinking this is a special thing just for us just for the Jewish people, just for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who do all these rituals and all these covenant practices, blah, blah, blah. But from day one, and and this was a perspectives thing, the thread. Do you remember the brochure (laughs) that I joined perspectives with? I think the theme of it was threaded. Is it still? Yeah. No, it it was get threaded, and we've got a different theme now. But it, it basically was saying that it starts in the Old Testament, and it's threaded clear through the Bible, God's story of redemption, his relentless pursuing us and wanting us to to glorify him. So, yeah, that was get threaded is what you remember. And so it wasn't just the message and the way he interacted with his people, Israel, wasn't just for Israel. Exactly. It was blessed to be a blessing. That's what he says to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, that through you, all nations will be blessed. And so mm-hmm. his idea is... Uh, to reach the nations with this message of redemption. Always, always been that way. Yep. With this message of the solution to my wrath for sin, which you're all guilty of. Mm-hmm. And nations, as you know better than anyone, is is uh, 
every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethne, there's a group called. These are people groups all over the world, and, and you are on the front lines of seeing that redemptive plan for the world carried out, which must be exhilarating. At times it is. At times, I mean, also we had, uh, we in perspectives for us too, it was a very important lesson for us, even coming off the mission field and then, and then realizing that uh, God's heart for the nations has always been there. It, one of the things about perspectives is you read your Bible differently after you've taken uh, that class. That, that one passage in Psalm 64, you know, be still and know that I am God. Followed up by that is I will be exalted uh, among the nations, I will be exalted in all the earth. Right after that, you know, so you know, we we take that, and it's a beautiful passage for a, a relationship that we have with our personal God. But but his his uh, intention is to be known among the nations, among the whole world. And he's doing that. He's done that. He used Israel as kind of the launch pad oh, yeah. to do that. And uh, I, I, you know, some of the places in the New Testament where Jesus is trying to enlighten the Pharisees on what's going on here, the the scraps off the table, mm-hmm. this, and they're just it, they must be livid because their entire understanding of I thought this was just for us, I didn't know this was for all those sinners and those unclean people out here. Um, it's beautiful stuff, God's redemptive plan, the gospel. Let's get back to your story. Um, so you went to the mission field. Hopefully people have picked this up, but you've been in the mission field now twice. You spent an extended period of time in Nepal, mm-hmm. and then you came back home, and then now you're back in your home from being out a second time, but you're going to be out, which we would still call the second time, yep, right? That's, well, you, you actually, come... let me back up. It's actually the third time. Okay. We uh, actually had an opportunity to go for two months to Africa. Oh. And uh, that was uh, a time where God really showed us that he could take care of us and that we could be used. Uh, it was a French-speaking part of Africa. We learned a little French before we went, never used it. Um, and he still was able to use us in that place. It was a small hospital there. And, and, and it was just horrible as far as, like, it was not beautiful. <laughs> and it was just full of dust in the air from the Sahara Desert. It, it was ugly. It was ugly. And we ate yams every day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like them. And, uh, but God showed us we can have joy in that place yep. because that's where he wanted us. And he gives joy. Yeah. So, so we could come back and say, you know, to the to our mission, hey, we can go for a four year term because we know we've seen how God is working on our lives. So we're really a promoter of opportunities, you know, short term opportunities too, because that's where God can change your heart and show you uh, what He can do with you. One of the lessons for me as I've learned more about missions was short term and long term. I always thought long term was like two months would be long term. That's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but two months is short term and long term is, what would you? Yeah, I don't know. yeah, some years. I mean, we were in Nepal for 10 years, over 11 year span. And um, there we really got to see the birth of a church in a place yeah. where there was no church. It was very remote. We just saw the wonder of God at work. I mean, you can't you can't beat that experience for anything in the world. And that was our hardest years of our life. But it was it was by far the the best, the most meaningful years of our life. Describe your time in Nepal. Like, what was the spiritual condition of the people? What was, you know, what religion do they practice? What were you doing? Obviously, you were doing medicine. Was it in a clinic or you were doing engineering stuff? Mm-hmm. Talk about Nepal. Yeah. 
Yeah, Nepal was a Hindu kingdom. So they were officially Hindu, uh, but they were also one of the ten poorest uh, countries in the world. So you're talking about like a state religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they, the king was regarded as a reincarnation of a god. So it was that Hindu wow. uh, there. But they were poor, and they just were so desperate to be developed that they would put up with Christians to come in and help them with that. And that's what the mission did. So we weren't undercover or anything like that. We had projects that we were involved in. I was involved with um, a working uh, or a small workshop for uh, young Nepali boys and eventually girls to learn skills in building and machining and, and electrical and, and woodworking and all those things. Um, those skills, though, were put to use then in some larger and larger, larger hydropower projects that, that they needed a little bit more uh, expertise in the way of processing and, and engineering. And so, so it really did fit what so, I was doing. So did I understand this right? You said they knew you were Christian mm. and they welcomed you in. Yeah. So somehow, help me understand that, because I always think of if it's a theocracy mm-hmm. and they're not Christian, mm-hmm. it's like a closed country and you can't practice or speak about your faith that was different in Nepal? It was different, yeah. We could, uh, we always had access, I mean, we could speak one-on-one. We could not be, this is maybe one important thing, we could not be leaders in a church. We couldn't be like the ones up front kind of organizing things or, or anything like that. So we were forbidden from doing When you say like we, that. do you mean Christians? Do you Sorry, mean you? I'm talking about the missionaries that were working. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you were part of a church that was birthed, you just said. Yes. Uh, the first place that we were at in Nepal had a small congregation. And so there we were more involved with discipling and mentoring, like the leaders. Um, there were very few Christians then in Nepal, probably um, 50,000, I think, in a land of um, several million. Um, and that church actually has grown more than any other church in the world, they think, or close to the highest, because wow. now there's over 2 million believers. But um, then from the first location, we moved to a re- remote spot. And we went there with one young man and his wife who were Nepali. He was an evangelist. And so he was the one who um, would lead the church uh, in this new place. Well, there were no believers, but... Um, we had faith there would be, and yeah, a church was birthed there. The Holy Spirit worked, and um, there was a congregation born. And um, so that's how God worked. The Holy Spirit worked. Um, it was, it was amazing. There were so many stories of persecution. It's not like was it was free ask. to become a believer. You, you would you get seven have. years uh, in prison for baptizing someone. So that was done in secret. You would be two years in prison if you were baptized. Um, you weren't not you were not supposed to convert our, our local believers. The people who became believers, they were sent out of their families. They were beaten up in the town square. They were kicked out of their job. They lost the job as principal of a school, uh, and, and some of them had to leave that area for a while. But it's fun to hear how God has continued to use them, and some of them are back in that area. What I don't get is how is it okay for Christians to be there? and start a church, and at the same time, you're going to lose your job and go to jail. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like pick, pick a side here. Either make it <laughs> like the Saudis or, or open it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, help me understand that. I think, um, yeah, again, I think they were just, Nepal was seeing the outside world get so far ahead of them 
and have things, and they wanted mm. a, they wanted a piece of that, mm-hmm. and uh, and so these these workers are able willing to come in and and help us build up our infrastructure, mm-hmm. give us schools that our kids can come out of and actually compete, you know, with against the Indians maybe uh, next door. Um, they um, and also just in developing of small villages and water irrigation uh, and and all the things that go along with you know just kind of developing yeah. The, the village they you mentioned hydropower as being a huge thing in both Kashmir and <laughs> Nepal is this because there's like water coming off the mountains oh yeah exactly it's at mountains it's the water starts up high and it comes eventually comes down fast and hard and so there's a lot of potential energy there and so they ha- it's a some it's a uh, an industry that not only will benefit the people but they can something they can sell because India and China also need more and more energy all because of their large populations so it, it positions Nepal you know for hydropower they're very well positioned if they can develop that resource but but the first thing that happens with any kind of uh, hydropower project is you got to build a road to this place because mm. it is just so remote and uh, yeah so so difficult so there were you know there were definitely challenges that way uh, but we were doing it with we're kind of working alongside these young Nepalis that had come up through the some of that training and uh, and so when there was a kind of a civil war in in uh, Nepal, uh, I was involved in like three different projects uh, a five megawatt twelve megawatt and sixty megawatt projects during our time there. After we left, about a year or two later, um, there was a, a, a civil war, Maoist, and uh, all these, uh, all three, were bombed. All three hydropower projects were bombed, like ruined. All three are working again. Wow! And and this is without you know any. Uh, we're we're gone. The, the engineers are gone now, and and the, so they the put Nepalis, it back together. The Nepalis were able to put it back. That together. must be gratifying. Oh, you bet it is. Yeah, because I mean that's proof that. Yeah, we, well, we did something. Trained them well. <laughs> we did something, right? Wow. Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about all this, how I think in America we're so developed and we're so, we just take our stuff for granted yeah, we do. that it, it gets back to things like energy and roads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't yeah. even think about that. Right, right. Like, of course there's roads, and of course things work mm-hmm. when I plug them in or whatever. <laughs> uh, fascinating. Tell me about your medical clinic or whatever you were doing over there in the medical field? Uh, in Nepal, I was working at a mission hospital for the first three years. And then the rest of the time I was involved in either just really remote medical care in that remote place. There was no doctor within a eight-hour bus ride. And so I, you know, was just doing anything I could do. But, of course, you can't operate, and I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon anyway. I'm an internal medicine physician. But I was delivering babies. I was, um, you know, trying to get a local man import medication so they would have medications available and just trying to educate people. Um, the last three years I was working with leprosy patients exclusively. With a, I managed a small leprosy hospital and the mobile clinics because if you can catch people early and treat them they can be cured and so it was part of that initiative they they were the second highest number of leprosy patients uh, per capita in the world at that time um, so it was still a major problem so leprosy is obviously something we're familiar with in the bible mm. but it's still around today yes describe mm-hmm. leprosy um, it's a disease that uh, an infectious disease that affects your nerve endings so your nerve endings are attacked and and are damaged 
um, then you can't feel things in your fingers and feet. So you're walking on a stone or you're burning your hand when you're cooking over the fire. So then the finger gets infected or the toe gets infected, then the bone's infected, then that finger gets lost. Then the nerves to the muscles don't work. And so you can't open and close your hands. You can't open and close your eyes. So you go blind because you're not lubricating your eye properly. Hmm. Uh, so it becomes very crippling uh, in time. And it's contagious? Yes. It also affects the skin. So that's the part in the Bible they would talk about because you can get the discoloration on the skin. It's contagious, but, um, you know, and people really fear it and think of it as a curse. Even there in Nepal, it was considered a curse from the gods. And so they would make hmm. the people leave their home and live outside of the village. Wow. Uh, but it... Um, it, it can be cured, uh, and if you have good health practices like good nutrition and you're not all crammed into one little room, it's not so contagious. But, of course, mm -hmm. it, is, uh, it it's, goes through the air, kind of like TB. So if you're the only doctor with an eight-hour bus ride, I mean, that sounds like absolute chaos. It could have been. It never was. Uh, I mean, there were times, of course, we were woke up in the middle of the night, you know, to take care of someone, or they'd carry them in on a you know, stretcher. Tell a story about house. that. I want to hear, yeah. a, a, like, a war story. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. Well, they would just come with their flashlight and, yeah, be shouting or coughing and clearing their throat outside our door. That's how they knock. And then they would just ask me to walk with them to their home where the lady's trying to deliver a baby. And wow. so you're walking in the middle of the night through the mountains. and um, Like how far? Oh, like three hours or two. What? <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a car. We didn't have a vehicle. You're walking three hours. So yes. somebody walked three hours. Yes. So it's been six hours since anyone's been there. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, Goodness gracious. But for thankfully, most of the time, things went well. When I just said it could have, it sounds like chaos, and you said it could have been, but thankfully it wasn't. When you say it could have been, what's your perception of chaos? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying it could have been chaos in that there was so much need there. And, and here's a foreign doctor that, you know, people would really want to flock to. And, and I think we could have been overwhelmed, you know. Just you never were. People were always, you know, you, you could have been where there was a lineup outside our door every time we woke up right. in the morning. And it never got to be that way. I had a clinic there. And so a lot of people came to the clinic. But some mm -hmm. people would come and just sit in our yard, you know, overnight because they wanted to but come to clinic the next day. That was not So describe your living situation and describe your clinic just like what it looked like what did you sleep on straw mats i mean you know people have their ideas in their head about what a missionary goes through yeah well most people there would be sleeping on straw mats we we did have a like a cotton we, we always had thin mattress floors. and you always cement. had what cement floors we were always uh, you know so we weren't on mud floors we yeah, had an outhouse we did we had an outhouse we didn't have running water in the house kind of made this thing on top of the roof so we could pour water up there and get a little bit into the kitchen if we wanted we, engineer is going to engineer we yeah, had a solar right. bag to heat up water for our shower we just hang it's like camping every day of your life you know because yeah. you'd use that little <laughs> bag to take your shower yeah Wow, She's been forever uh, ruined for camping. Yeah, that's I true. <laughs> I, I put in my time. I said for the camping. <laughs> Five star hotels only. <laughs> oh my! What what an incredible life! So you were in Nepal for ten years. Mm. Did you have any other doctors working with you, or was it just you? In that one place, it was just me, and with the leprosy patients, it was just me. But I, I had some Nepali nurses with the leprosy work. Um, that we were training. 
Mm-hmm. And at the Mission Hospital, that first three years, there were several doctors. But, and that was like experience. in a place that wasn't out remote. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a great experience for Diane. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really did see how medicine was uh, performed in Nepal. It's a big learning curve because you're doing things without a lot of tests. You rely on your um, skills as to appreciate the history and what they look like and what oh. everything feels so like. So I know that Neil Williams, you know, is a played a seminal role maybe in in your lives or was an encouragement. Neil and Lil Williams, of course, were in the same church that you were part of, and he was a, a general surgeon in town here who also spent time on the mission field. I think they were in Syria early mm-hmm. in their lives and then different places, and uh, kind of a hero of mine. But one thing I learned um, by interacting with Neil, I broke my collar, collarbone one day playing flag football, which don't ask how that happens. <laughs> but uh, I went to a doc. My doctor was another doctor who spent some time in East Timor, which no one knows where that's at, but it's way out in the boondocks. And so he'd been done, doing some of this, like, frontline, remote doctor stuff. Mm. And I'm going to get to the question, which is, do you have a uh, lack of, how would I say this the right way, a, a lack of compassion for people like us in America who are just saturated with comfort and ease and hygiene because of what you've seen? So let me tell the Neil story, and then you can think about your answer to that question. Uh, so I I go get my, and it was, I mean, I fractured it bad. It's kind of, it wasn't sticking through the skin, but it's poking out. And so I'm at the ER and Doc comes up and basically, you know, puts the thing on that pulls it back and kind of puts it in line, but it never really lined up like the right way. It's still kind of poking like this. And he's like, eh, it's not a weight-bearing bone, no big deal, whatever. And I'm kind of like, okay, it's my 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so a few days go by. And I was in an evangelism explosion class at the church, and Neil Williams was there. I said, Neil, I broke my collarbone. This doctor, I feel like he didn't take very good care of me. I mean, this thing isn't even, like, set the right way. He just threw this harness on me. Is this going to be okay? And he, like, has me pull my collar shirt down and looks at it. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're going to be fine. He's like, he told me one time he fell off his motorcycle, broke his collarbone, took his belt out of his pants, strapped it around his arm, cinched it up, got on his motorcycle, and rode the rest of the way. <laughs> and so, like, this guy, no bedside manner at all, and does not care about pain. And, <laughs> of course, now I'm saying pain in an American mm-hmm. pain sense. So uh, I guess my question for you, Selah, is what? how do you translate between the cultures? Like, when you're practicing medicine here with... Reverend Dr. Homer Larson, and you're, who's, I'm sure, a wimp like the rest of us Americans. And then, all respect to Homer, of course. Uh, and then you're going over there, and people are walking six hours for a delivery, and who knows what else you saw. I mean, I'm sure you had to have people just die in front of you, right? That you just couldn't do anything for, that if you were here, they would have been fine. Right. So how do you, how do you in your mind, accommodate both of those things and still be a good doctor in both places, and you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I think God calls us to compassion for people and their suffering, and we 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 can't um, interpret what they're feeling. I think people here have suffering in different ways, and in the United States, and so I mean, there's there's certainly things Jesus wants to do in the lives of both of them through your your being there or your skills. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But is there it's sometimes here in America kind of like, come on, guys. Like in <laughs> Nepal, 
you know what I mean? <laughs> I think the one thing that bothered you the most was just the waste of things getting thrown away, I guess, you know, after some medical procedure, you know, and then just all the waste from uh, surgeries and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, like everything's disposable. Let's just throw all these these pieces of equipment away. It's just like... In the name of uber hygiene or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like we'd take or, that stuff over there and reuse or, it. Yeah, oh, right, a right. million times. Yeah. Fascinating. So, Nepal, three power plants. Uh, you had two children in Nepal. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you decided that it was going to be best for your family to move back here. How did that all play out? Like, did you think at the beginning that you might stay, or did you always plan to come back with your kids when they got to a certain age, or what kind of drove some of that? I th- we'd thought about 10 years as our initial commitment, so we'd kind of reached that. But... Um, also, the things that Mike was doing seemed to be reaching a bit of a close or like handing yeah, the, it over, handing it over to, to new people. Yeah, uh, and then we just thought it would be best for our kids for a while to be in the U.S. to see what, see how to act here, see, see how to interact, to, to know their one grandparent that was left because the other ones had passed away mm-hmm. while we were gone and... So, I mean, there were a lot of things. Sometimes you don't know if you made the right decision. Mm-hmm. You yeah. trust the sovereignty of God, right? Yeah. Yeah. D- Diane's father passed away our first year in Nepal, and my dad passed away the last year of Nepal. And were you we were able there. to come back for those? Um, for her dad, yeah. My dad, I was too late for that. Hmm. But we'd had a good time that summer before, so it wasn't, yeah, totally unexpected. Um but yeah, that did kind of play into our decision that oh, our kids got to know Grandma, Grandma Opal, hmm. um, because it, it's just too. Yeah, uh, little did you know how mess. long she would be around. <laughs> yeah, that's right, awesome. Right. Um, my parents spent a couple of years in Papua New Guinea, and they talk about how their first initial commitment was for a year, and then they basically called home and said, uh, we're staying for another year. Mm, And there's a story about my mom's mom, my grandma, you know, maybe not taking that news so well. (laughs) And so talk about just what what I'm thinking about is people might be listening to this going, you know, I wonder if the Lord is calling me to not stay home. And what are the costs going to be? And we've talked about some of the costs, about cement floors and inch-thick cotton mattresses and, and remote medicine, maybe. That's not the case for everybody who goes no. to do cross-cultural missions. Not at all. Um, but there's a you got to navigate some family dynamic costs. Some of it is you had your kids and you wanted to, okay, they've been born over there, and now we want them to spend some time in the States so they see how this works. But talk about, like, the extended family costs or the mom and dad, grandma and grandpa type stuff. Yeah. Uh, especially when, like, when we were in Nepal, there was very little communication. A letter would take three weeks. Hmm. Um, we'd have to climb up to the top of the hill to get to a phone that the Japanese had put up there, uh, a solar outfit. Um, and so it didn't happen very often. So, yeah, that is so hard for parents and grandparents when when you, when they don't know what's going on and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they're so far away. So, yeah, there there is that, that cost. Um and and then just you think about it, giving up your child to go into mission, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that really came to bear. I think in perspectives too, where we uh, just heard about that, and 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 were challenged to release the, your kids to mission. I mean, mm-hmm. that's 
that's a tough thing. Both of us, though, because our our, our family experiences, our our families, our parents did were aware of what God was doing. You know, with uh, with the earlier generation, so um, you know they were definitely sympathetic. Uh, and encouraging to us, actually always encouraging to our face. I don't think your mom ever would would have said, you know, no, don't go. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, actually we have an interesting story about my mom on this second time because my mom, we went to Kashmir uh, before my mom passed away. and So hang on, Kashmir is your second or third, if you want yeah. to call it that, <laughs> but this is the more recent. Just give us a date. Most when did recent. you go to Kashmir? In um, 2018. 2018, yeah. And you're back now. When did you come back? We came back a year ago. Because of COVID? Yeah, Yeah, because of of COVID. We had to leave. And you're waiting for? Just our visas to open as soon as they say you can come. Then you'll go go. back. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I just wanted to give people a reference point time-wise. Yeah. So it was interesting, though, because my mom had developed pretty severe dementia her last uh, two years of her life. And... So we had made the decision, well, we, it was time to go to Kashmir. And she hadn't really connected with who I was. She would smile at me, but she hadn't really connected for a few months. Hmm. And, but then I told her, you know, Mom, we're thinking of going back overseas, you know, like when we were in Nepal, so we can um, share who Jesus is. And um, all of a sudden, she just, like, woke up. And she said, hmm. oh, you're going to – it's like when you were in Nepal? Hmm. She was like, well – you need to be going. So wow. it was that was like a that's awesome. great blessing because she hadn't really cool. spoken a sentence to me for a long time. So that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. It's kind of like you said, Mac, uh, releasing your kids to mission, and that's mm-hmm. something that we need to be able to do, whether they're going to cross cultural overseas mission or not. I just wonder, like, are we willing to do that? Yeah. Has your perspective changed on that, having kids of your own? Like, did you feel like when you were being called and it was exciting and we're going to go over there and do this and we don't care if we talk to our family for three months because it's up on top of the hill or whatever, but now it's like now you got kids and you imagine them in that situation. I mean, are you more understanding of that than maybe you would think that you were would be because of your experience? or No. I don't think so. I think it. I think for a parent, no matter what, it's hard. And mm-hmm. and you, I mean, again, we have the example of Opal that you know she never would like hold back her kids or make them feel guilty or anything like that. But you've got to believe it. It tore, tore her heart heart up. Yep. And I think it'll tear my heart up too. Yeah. So so then where is? I mean, it's it's only by the grace of God that you hmm. you do that, uh, just in obedience. I mean. God doesn't ask us to always do things that we want to do or like or or we've adjusted to. It doesn't happen that way. Hmm. That's great. Time out on, on you guys. Jill, you're sitting here listening to this. You've known these guys for a while. And just what are some of your thoughts listening to this? Well, yeah, I have known them for quite a while. Um, and, and I'm just sitting here in amazement because I'm hearing stories I'd never heard and uh, learning so much more about your work in Nepal. And, you know, I know that Nepal is one of those countries that God has been moving in in the last 10 to 20, 20 years, I think. And so just to hear a little bit more about your involvement has just been great. But, yeah, I'm just sitting here in amazement. So thanks for letting me. Um, <laughs> let's let's get back to your story about how you end up going back to Kashmir. So oh, you came yeah. back in 99 mm-hmm. from Nepal. Right. And now 
you said you went to Kashmir in 2018. So that's Beginning. 18, 19 years. Mm-hmm. And what were you doing during that 18, 19 years, and what brought you to the point where you're going back to Kashmir? Yeah, right. We, you know, and, and it just kind of amazes us, too, that, that we were home for 18 years. In fact, we were home for 14 years before we even went back to visit Nepal, where we had spent so much time. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was surprising to us. Yes, we came back. Had a, a place in Neil Williams' office, actually, uh, a position uh, before we even landed uh, that she was able to share with uh, the medical associates there on Clay Street. Mm-hmm. So that was really uh, a blessing because, well, it was always a blessing to come back because Opal Hall and Hans always had a place, or Opal had a place for us all the time uh, whenever we would come home. And so we didn't have to think about, you know, where we're we going to go live or anything like that. And because one of the reasons for coming back was Opal. Uh, then we knew it was going to be in this area. So we didn't have a lot of the, you know, kind of big questions that, um, mm-hmm. that missionaries often have when they when they leave the field. Um, I was kind of, we were, we were also kind of taking care of the kids as far as getting our kids in school and getting them a little bit of adjusted. So, so I wasn't in a real big hurry that I had to have work. Um, and so I, I just kind of let it be known. And, and eventually someone from NAS also uh, let it be known that I was back in town uh, um, Roberts, uh, oh, Sue, uh, Sue, Roberts. Sue Roberts, that's right. She uh, let them know, and so they actually contacted me to, to come back to the company and, and work in engineering again. So uh, so then I, that's what I was doing uh, as our kids then were going through school and college here. Cool. And so then at some point you get into perspectives with Jill, which is hilarious to me because – in my mind, I'm like, you could have written perspectives, <laughs> but you take perspectives. No, no. And uh, and let me just say, let me just add that, like, I thought, I don't know if I really want to take perspectives. So I did first. I thought I'm kind of busy. I'm on call a lot. But then finally, like three years later, I did. And there is a lot to learn. Yeah. It doesn't matter how long you've been on the mission field. There is a lot to learn about God's story. And we kind of did it in reverse order because we took perspectives after we'd been on the mission field. But but we found that it really did reinforce a lot of the things that we saw happen. We saw God doing these things. And, oh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it was supposed to be. Uh, as far as even uh, the leadership of the church developing, you know, from the from the people of the country instead of being foreigners, you know, and that. And then... W- our situation in Nepal was we were never leaders in the church, so we didn't have to really relinquish it, and that was good for the church uh, that they were able that they had to uh, develop their leadership right from the from the get go. One thing I want to tag on to that you just said, Sela, was that there's so much to learn even after you've been on the mission field. Like I said, my perspective of you is like you could have written perspectives, but you're like, man, there's so much to learn. And, and I love that learners, I think the Lord wants us to be lifelong learners, mm-hmm. humble. Right. My great uncle was Ted Macestead. You remember him? Oh, yeah. He was a pastor. And he lived to be 101, I think. And uh, my dad called me one day and said, hey, we've got a Christmas celebration down where they're all from in Radcliffe, Iowa. And Ted needs a ride. Will you pick him up and take him down there? And so I've got my family in a van, and Ted, pretty old at this time, maybe not 100 yet, maybe 98, 99. And on the way down to Christmas, he wanted me to quiz him on his Bible memory through the book of Psalms. (laughs) I just thought, this dude knows the Bible better than anyone I know, and he's still working on memorizing it. I just, Mm -hmm. I love what you just gave uh, 
testimony to, and I love what Ted gave testimony to, just we're never going to understand this all fully, right, until mm-hmm. in, in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so keep learning and keep being humble and keep growing and developing. That's yeah. awesome. So what did you learn in perspectives, or how did God inspire you that made you go, man, we weren't planning on going back to the mission field, but now we're going. Yeah, right. Well, certainly the big um, focus right now is on unreached people groups, but it seems to be especially among uh, Muslims because they are they seem to be the most unreached. So, you know, we might have naturally been inclined to go back to work um, in a Hindu place because we're familiar with that culture and that religion. Um, but it, it took us uh, some prompting to get over a discomfort to go to work among Muslims in that... Um, as a woman, I, I feel like uh, I don't really like to cover my head and I don't really like to look down at the ground and follow cultural norms that are more difficult for us as Americans. Um, so there were things I had to kind of get over and then think, hmm. okay, uh, yeah, if God wants us there, he'll, he'll, he'll make that a joyful place just like he did in Benin. Hmm. Benin is in Nepal. Uh, no, uh, Benin Africa. was Africa, where yeah, yeah. it's just like eating yams every day. Yeah, ben- Benin is <laughs> the name of a country, right? Benin, yes, yeah, it's right, right yeah. next to Nigeria. There's my geography for you. Well, Benin is in Nepal, right? Sorry. It's, it, I mean, it is a pretty small, and at the time it was communist country, and yeah, there wasn't much information about it. We were surprised too, actually. I want to touch on a couple things that you just brought up. Unreached people. That That's a... Uh, piece of terminology that not everyone's familiar with what what are unreached people i would say that you know it's it's a just trying to describe a people that you know they can go through their entire life and they'll never meet a, a christian and especially not, not a christian in their own uh language and in their own culture so that would be unreached and we talk about people an unreached people or mm-hmm. an unreached people group what's what's a people group usually people. it would be dis- distinguished by their language and culture uh, that would be distinguish them from another people group that has a little bit different or has vastly different customs. Maybe the same language, but vastly different customs. So uh, there are, yeah, many, many groups of people that in their own language and in their own way of expressing their, their culture and expressing themselves, there is no Christian witness. So when I first started to learn about missions, one thing that blew my mind, I always thought of people groups as being being basically geographical lines on a map and so like i remember somebody told me nigeria has gobs of people groups hundreds maybe could be i mean depending on how you define and draw the lines of Mm -hmm. people groups language culture i would have maybe drawn the lines geographically and maybe just kind of general ethnicity you know but it's much more complex than that right and when the bible talks about uh, tribes, tongues, and nations. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, People me. groups. Mm-hmm. Just give us a quick primer on um, Scripture's promise to the nations. I, you know, I've said on the podcast, and I think this is accurate, that there will be people, because the Bible says it, from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are part of the kingdom of God. That's right. Through faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're talking about like a representative from every people group? How do you understand that? I don't understand it. I just know that that <laughs> I love it. that we have that promise, and so that is something you know that we strived to make happen. I mean, because we're all looking forward to the return of Christ, mm-hmm. and so if there's something that I can do to make sure that this ethnic group 
this language, this person, or this this people group, is uh, represented in the in the church. I mean, you know, when you we just went through the um, the Olympics, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, and the, the opening ceremony. Didn't it give you goosebumps as you saw all those different people walking in, all the different styles of clothing and and the, the complexions and the sizes of the people and everything? It just God has made an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. world. And now, picture that as all having uh, the uh, the ability to praise God, mm-hmm. lift their voices in praise to God. You know, and and not just a, a athletic event. I mean, but just acknowledging, mm-hmm. you know, that what what's ha- what God's done to them, uh, done for them in Christ. I mean, it's a f- fantastic. As these image representatives for us. who know Christ are gathered together. In heaven, yeah. the new heavens, the new earth, yeah, the new Jerusalem, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be amazing, and we get to see a piece of it even now, yeah. but but only a part of it. And and what the part that we see is so wonderful that it just makes us, you know, say, okay, it's even going to be greater. Now, I'm going to probably get myself in trouble saying this, but I, I'm really kind of annoyed with how the racial conversation has hijacked oh, yeah. our narrative in America lately. And I get it, I, I, but. Like, as Christians who believe what the Bible says about this, every tribe, tongue, and nation, it's just like, well, of course there's people different than us who are loved by God and who are, some of them, going to know Christ. And it's like there's there's zero. If you have, I had a friend uh, who was talking about this, a preacher, and he just said, you don't deal with the racial issue by talking about race. You deal with the racial issue by understanding the Bible. Mm, yeah. Head, the head because when you understand it, there's just no room for any of that. That's right. Superiority between... Even sexually. I mean, even between the sexes. That's, that's yeah. the same thing. It, it, yeah. It, and with the headship of Christ, those things are all... Fade away. Yeah, fade away. Yeah, Good that's point. cool. Um, a, another term that we've talked about is cross-cultural missions, or what is missions. I remember I used to have you know, a pretty narrow understanding of what missions was, or maybe it was a pretty broad understanding of what missions was, because when I was in junior high or whatever, we went on a quote-unquote missions trip, and it was over to this other, you know, place that I could drive to for a week. And we worked in the morning, and then we went and had fun and did stuff that we do at home in the night. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I've been part of missions. You know, I raised my hand at the thing or whatever. It's like, ah, today I'm not sure I would say that that was missions, you talked, uh, Jill, about how you know we don't want to discourage that. That's a good entry point. But let's kind of have a conversation about what's missions. Oh, I was going to point to Mac and Sayla for that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think missions is helping make God's no- name known uh, in whatever way that is. Um, and so that little youth mission trip that you were on uh, likely was doing that. I don't know exactly what you were doing. Uh, but... There is a difference between cross-cultural and, um, and just other missions. So, for example, I could go work at the food bank this afternoon right here in town and call it missions. And that certainly is some type of mission. Uh, but that's not so much cross-cultural mission. When, when Mac and Sayla go across the ocean and sleep on the floor and use an outhouse, uh, that's certainly not our culture. So that is cross-cultural. But there, the reason that cross-cultural to me is so important is there's about a third of the people in the world today 
that will not hear the name of Jesus without a cross-cultural ministry because the people surrounding them don't know Jesus. The people surrounding them of their culture cannot share. There's not a church on every corner like there is here in the U.S. And so there has to be a cross-cultural ministry in order to reach them. And so that's the reason that for me, cross-cultural missions is very important. Uh, But I don't want to downplay any missions. Right. What would you add to that? Well, um, <clears throat> the one way that I think about it too is that you know you're you're building relationships with people that are not like you, and and that takes a little bit of extra uh, energy. Let's say, I mean, when we would come home, we would we were so involved in our church when we were living in the United States. But when we went to Nepal, we were also involved with our church. But we'd come home wiped out. I mean, just so tired because we were in a different culture. The t- cultural cues were different. We were trying to remember the language, you know, and we were trying to understand why did this guy do it this way or why did they invite us to do this or why don't they like what we're doing, you know, in, in this particular scenario. So that, that it's a bit of a strain, I guess, on you. And so it mm. gives you, mm-hmm. uh, it just takes more energy to do that. Okay, so so I you only would distinguish it as that, well, should I take that two-hour drive from Cedar Falls or, you know, do something a little bit more of a different culture and, and a little bit more of a stretch. Well, yeah, I think I would encourage the more of a stretch just because there's there's so much that they don't know, so much uh, that Jesus isn't isn't there. Uh, I mean, well, Jesus, sorry, Jesus is there. Um, they just don't have the opportunity to to get to know him through a human being like myself. And and as we think about Jesus himself, who was incarnational, he came into the world mm-hmm. in human form so that we could better understand who God is and what God's plan was. And yeah. so in the flesh. In the flesh. And so we want to show that same kind of love and respect to people of all cultures. So we try to enter into their place respecting everything they do and say and look like and I mean not condemning them not saying you have to change all this to become a Christian. Let's look at what the basics in scripture is. Let's let's know the let's know who Jesus is. Let's know who what God's plan is. But um, then let's look at the heart. But to communicate with people, it's like a relationship that has to be um, established on respect. And so you have to honor each other. You have to you have to uh, not be belittling people. Um, so it's all about that, that cross-cultural aspect of mission. You talk about the incarnation of Christ. I mean, this is the ultimate cross-cultural yeah. mission, right? Well, isn't it, though? It comes from heaven <laughs> to earth. That's craziness. Uh-huh. And so that, that's a great uh, reminder of a lot of times what God calls us to is exactly what he's been doing. And he did cross-cultural missions in maybe the most extravagant sense of the word. Mm-hmm. What's an example, just while I was listening to you talk, Selah, what's, the, what's an example from each of you, maybe off the top of your head, of something in a different culture that was very, very difficult for you? Or, you know, you mentioned wearing a, a head covering and looking at the ground or, or just some kind of custom. You know, I was, when you were saying 
you don't want to belittle them for what they're doing or you don't want to say you have to change this. But there are definitely things in other cultures that you're like, whoa, 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 we can't be doing this. Yeah, right. And you got to pretty much bite your tongue, right? And just kind of, mm-hmm. or maybe you didn't bite your tongue sometime or whatever. <laughs> but can you think of any examples of something culturally that was maybe like offensive or difficult or you just had to go home and like lay awake and think about, did I just see that and is that okay or whatever? You, uh, I've got something. Yeah. So when we were in Nepal, there was a water shortage. And um, so the, uh, normally we would get uh, water to our house um, that would come a couple hours a day and it would fill up a tank that was in the float ground. And then, and then if there was electricity, it would we'd pump that water up to the top. But there was a shortage. And so there was very little water coming into the village. And so there was one day I got up early in the morning and my neighbor came into our gate and walked past the house and then went to that tank in the ground and and was dipping out water, you know, and then taking it back to her house, which we would have we would have given to her if had she asked. Um, And but but I just, you know, I I saw that happen. A neighbor that I know, she knows us uh, doing that. And I thought. I'm never going to fully fit in here because I don't, I, you know, I don't, I can't. Yeah, that was a hard thing. And, and it was a good lesson for me. I never, I never brought it up or anything. What was like the that. cultural thing behind that? Just that it was there and yeah, it was available. Go ahead and take it. Like they're not going to use it as much as I need it. And so I can just take some of their water. Or what? I don't think there'd be a comparison. I think it would just be that there's water in his tank. I need some water. And whether I have to, you know, come over and take it myself, I just... You haven't used the word steal. And that's no. probably on purpose because because yeah. they didn't that's right. think of it as stealing. Sorry, thank you. That, But that's what in my American brain was stealing. Right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Interesting. Yeah. But I just think it's interesting that you've even cross-cultured enough <laughs> to train yourself to not use the word steal. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. I don't think I'd be great in a lot of cross-cultural settings. <laughs> But the Lord could work that in me, I suppose. Um, I think in both Nepal and in Kashmir, um, can I show a different picture of what marriage is like? Mm. Um, In both uh, Hindu and Muslim cultures, women are considered lower in many ways than the man. Wait a minute. They're not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little secret. (laughs) And uh, so, like, the woman will walk behind the man when you're walking Mm. on the road, or the woman doesn't enter the room when there's company. It's just the man with the guest. Um, But we, when we're in our home, we try to Mm -hmm. show what um, it's like to be partners in, mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ. And so we both partake of those sorts of things. And I walk beside Mike when we're walking on the street. But hmm. I still do try to show respect uh, for their culture by like not looking a man in the eyes. Uh, I look down at the road. I do cover my head. So those things I can do. Mm-hmm. But the things that I think have to do with who I uh, like showing what Jesus brings, the free, the, mm. kind of some of that freedom, um, then we try to demonstrate it. We don't. We don't condemn. We don't mm-hmm. talk about it. Or but flaunt it. Or flaunt it. Yeah, but we we do try to show it. Interesting. There's a passage in Romans that touches on something we were talking about earlier. Um, Romans 10 verses 13 and following. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Of course, that word preaching is what really colored my lens for a long time. Like, if you're going to do missions, you got to be a preacher. Mm. Well, I think that even Paul, who wrote this, would agree that it's not always literally preaching, like giving a sermon, but living among people and pointing them to Christ. A beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news or who give witness to it or live it or give an example of marriage that reflects Christ or something like that. That has to have been a passage that has been near and dear to you. Mm -hmm. Especially as we've been sent out, we've been very much supported by our congregations back here in the States. And so um, they sent out our, sent us out and and, uh, gave us the opportunity to to be in these different places. I was going to ask a question about that financially. Mm. Nepal or even now, I mean, how does that all work? One thing that freaks people out about missions is, I got to raise a bunch of money, yeah. um, and I've, in a small way, had some experience with that. It's totally overcomable. It's not as bad as you think. But uh, how did that work for you guys? When we were in Nepal, we were fully supported by our a couple of congregations here uh, in the United States, and it was a real blessing because then we could just come back, share, and and never really had to uh, to worry about those things. Um, now that we're overseas again. Um, I have my pension, and I'm able to live on that pension. And so um, we're still involved with the organization because we want them praying for us. And and maybe that's maybe that's the link. Um, you know, people's hearts, whether we like it or not, follow their pocketbook. And so if they're th- supporting us financially, then they're quite likely also praying for us. And, 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 you know, we come to mind every once in a while, maybe once a month or whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a good thing because we want to be there. We want be, people not only to be conscious of us, but uh, praying for us because uh, we're not there under our own strength. And when they're given money, they're more likely to be conscious of it. Yeah, it just it seems there's a linkage there, yeah. at least for an American. I, don't, I don't, wouldn't say that's for every culture, but yeah. I, I do like the philosophy of the mission that we've been with, the World Mission Prayer. Like it goes after Hudson Taylor's type of philosophy that you never, you never ask uh, for people to support you financially. You just tell them what you're doing hmm. or what you plan to do, the and if the Holy Spirit moves them to be part of it, they will. Cool. They will sign up on it. So that's awesome. We've seen God provide in that way. It's been very. Much a blessing. Yeah. Another missions term, 1040 window. Mm. You guys are in the 1040 window, right? We yes. are. What's 1040 window? You describe it. Well, it has to do with our, is it latitude or longitude? <laughs> latitude. North, <laughs> latitude. North, there north, we go. South, yeah. it's, it's the most unreached areas of the world are between this 10 degree and 40 degree line. And it does involve a big area that's... Um, dominated by Islam, really, a lot of Asia and Africa in, in that swath of land. You've mentioned Islam. You've mentioned Muslims before. Uh, there seems to be a lot of emphasis, like you said, in the missions speak these days about reaching Muslims. Um, obviously, that's very maybe countercultural in America or or politically incorrect, Or because if you're saying we need to reach Muslims— you're saying that Muslims, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, about the need to know Christ. Um, and, and then this is a little bit unrelated, but it's related in the sense that it's Muslims. You know, when you when you study Scripture and you see that Abraham's 
chosen son that God chose for him to pass the blessing on was Isaac. He had a son before that named Ishmael, Mm -hmm. who Abraham was given this promise by God that he's going to be the father of nations. And he's like, my wife's old. She ain't have no kids. And so I need to go make this happen. He gets with Hagar. They have Ishmael. And then there's another split in the family tree, the next generation, Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. Mm -hmm. And Jacob uh, is the son of the promise, even though he's the second son born of these twins. Mm -hmm. And even though Esau is supposed to get the blessing and supposed to get the birthright, there's a whole thing about that. And, and the Ishmaelites and the Edomites, the descendants of Ishmael and Edom, kind of go off. And in a sense, even way back in Genesis, are opponents of God's chosen people and the promise. And uh, some would say that they are the fathers, the forefathers of modern-day Islam. And some would say that there's been this cosmic battle. And I battle, I mean, mm-hmm. but, but spiritual battle between the sons of the promise, who today are those of us who trust Christ, mm-hmm. and the sons of the, if you want to say curse. Or the slave. Or the slave. Now, I, I've already, gosh, I can't imagine what half the professors that you and I would think about me saying this, but that's just kind of the history, biblically, of where we're at. So Islam, Muslims... You know, obviously they've been uh, in the news a lot because America has been at war to a degree with, some people would say, a war with Islam. Um, you differentiate between when you were in Nepal and, and just how, or when you're describing how Kashmir became Kashmir, mm-hmm. between militant Islam and regular run-of-the-mill Muslims. Right. I think that's an important distinction. Oh, Let's talk about Islam or Muslims a little bit. Mm-hmm. They're also, Islam, they, they look at it as having a lot of commonality with uh, Christians and Jews because they are also a people of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their written, their written scriptures. And, and as you read through the Quran, um, you find that it's so many references back to the Old Testament. In fact, it's almost written in the way that the Quran assumes that you've read the Old Testament, that you know the story of Moses before, or the story of Noah before they, they give you a few more tidbits about you know, mm-hmm. what happened there. So, so there's a lot of, of uh, overlap, or, or there's a lot, maybe let's say the, the foundation still comes out of that. You know, we, the Muslims only have two main holidays. I mean, that they you know get the family all together, and and the last one we just had last week was a, a holiday to celebrate what Abraham did in offering his son. Mm. What do they call that? Uh, Eid, Eid. Uh, and there's another Eid Mubarak. No, Mubarak. No, Mubarak is con- oh, is that that blessing or congratulations? Okay. Blessing. Yeah. Eid Mubarak is what What's... we say. Yeah, when we when we're there, um, but that's for any both of the Eids would be that way. Anyway, um, they, this is something that they very highly revere. Now, yes, it, Ishmael was the son, not Isaac. That was the son that was to be sacrificed. But but still, that they would raise that up. And then that is the one day that they'll have sacrifice of a of a goat uh, in the family. And then they share those portions of the goat with some with the family, but some uh, goes out to their neighbors and, and then people in need. So, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. celebration that they have. What I'm trying to get at is that there are so many of these linkages with um, with the uh, God of the Bible yeah. um, and and Jesus, but very critical 
very critical disconnects also with and 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 what you find with a lot of your uh, friends that are Muslim is that they've been very coached and mm. as to what uh, this is what a Christian's going to try and tell you uh, to, uh, about. Uh, and and this is why you have to kind of resist. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Uh, and so for uh, Sela and I, um, it's it's good to just build a relationship, like with you, with your with the the friend here too, um, that they can just know. Oh, this is a, this is a person who's believing in Jesus, and they're not like what my stereotype is of of what that person is. And mm-hmm. and also it it gives you, I guess. The rest it gives you an, an opportunity to give the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think I wouldn't be embarrassed or, or shy about telling a Muslim that you really should read the Bible mm-hmm. <laughs> and and get you know see what God's heart is because it's more than just a, a, a vindictive God. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at what He's done for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they accept the Bible as one of their holy books, but yeah, they, they say do. the Bible is so corrupted that they shouldn't read it. And so that's one of the main issues that we we have to face when we're um, in discussions with Muslims. But we find it's most helpful if we can just share from our heart um, the stories of scriptures, not, not actually pulling off the Bible, just telling the stories uh, from Old and New Testament and, and then discussing them. And... Um, we learned that in perspectives, by the way. Yeah. Uh, just to, to to tell a story of Jesus in your own words, because what it does is it shows people that you know, like, like kind of what you, the way you discuss current events. You know, did you hear what happened? You know, uh, with uh, this car accident over on the on two streets over or something like that. If you tell stories of Jesus in that kind of same familiarity, uh, then we find it has. Uh, it's an easy way to share. Uh, and uh, and also it, it hits the mark. Hmm. They don't get defensive right away and stop listening. Mm-hmm. We uh, for what, one Christmas. In fact, they love to to share then our holidays. So we we had a, the family over for Christmas, and so we read the Christmas story in, right out of the Bible. I mm-hmm. guess you know from Luke chapter two. And but then we got to the end, and and Salim said, "Now tell us what that means." Because they're used to someone else actually interpreting. The things that are written, like Which they is, they don't read the Quran for themselves. The, the Imam interprets things for them, yeah. uh, for the most part. A few people would read. The and it, I mean, if you put that in the historical Christian context, I mean, they're pre fifteen hundred, and you know when there was no printing press and when the Bible wasn't in everyone's language, and so it's it's easy to understand how you've got a billion or two billion people on the planet believing this stuff. Because it's being filtered through just a few, like you said, coach mm-hmm. coaches mm-hmm. that yeah. are. I, I I worked with a guy. Did you ever come and meet um, the dude at my house, Paul? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Paul Omari, mm-hmm. uh, Moroccan who became a believer. He came to the U.S. for work. Met a guy in Chicago. Became a Christian. He's got a crazy story. We've got. A, I should post a video in the show notes of Paul's story, which is is really cool. I'll do that. And Paul would, he came and stayed with me for a week and we made presentations to different groups of people around probably eight or nine of them in in a week. And he would just tell his story of conversion. Mm -hmm. And as I spent, I mean, I heard this same presentation eight or nine times. And after hearing it, 
I said, Paul, how is this still a viable religion? And I don't mean disrespect to, I mean, but it's just like there are so many massive, massive holes in this thing. He t- I remember he told a story about how he would ask his dad, he was young and inquisitive, Dad, why do we have to pray toward Mecca? If God is who God says he is or who you tell me he's, he is, can't he hear my prayer if I'm facing the other direction? And his answer, every time he asked a question like that, his dad's answer was, don't ask questions. This is what we do. Yeah. And, and if you've got an entire culture or entire faith system of people who are drilled with, don't ask questions, this is just what we do. Mm. Then this is how you get there, and and what's interesting is like in the before fifteen hundreds of Christianity, at least in the West, we we're kind of that way. Uh, I mean, in the sense of getting the information filtered to us through a few people that had maybe an agenda that was not exactly in line with Scripture. Mm-hmm. You're kind of equivocating. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, still because I see. Somehow we got to where we are today, and with with those same you know those the canon yeah. and and all yeah. that. So so it was still yeah it was used to to get us the yeah good news, and it was still based on truth at the source scripture. Yeah, yeah. that's right, that's right. And, and I mean, we're as human beings, we're capable of messing anything up, right? And, yeah. and so there was probably a time where yeah, it was the gospel might have been constrained, mm. uh, but. Okay, here comes perspectives again. You're never gonna, you're gonna never keep the lid on it. Right. Uh, God is, you know, determined that this is gonna, this is gonna impact the whole world. Yep. And that's something that Islam and the Quran simply don't have because right. it's not the word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we circled back and heard exactly how you got to Kashmir. So after taking perspectives and just being challenged to um, consider caring for those who practice Islam and sharing who Jesus is with them. Um, then we started exploring, thinking, okay, we're now is nearing retirement age. I could go ahead and stop working. Our kids are on their own. They're independent. Um, where, where should we go? And praying that the Holy Spirit would show us where to go. Yeah. And so we had some friends over in Kashmir uh, who were already working there, and they were anxious to have some helpers. Young family. Yeah. They were anxious to have some grandparents for their kids well, over also there. it was a tough term and, i mean they yeah. had uh, illness uh, and and big floods challenges. and all yeah, kinds floods, of things happened right. um yeah so so then we started praying about that and talking with them and uh and ended up applying for a, a world mission prayer league to allow us to go and they were very much um, supportive as far as um, encouraging us. And I, I think I'm going to just back up one step. We did ask the prayer league about you know where we should go to, and, and they were ones also that brought this up, that this was a potential place. So all along, we used the prayer league to help refine that call. In other words, we really didn't have it all narrowed down to like we're going to go to Nepal or even that we're going to go to Kashmir. Um, we, we just kind of said, okay, we're available and and that's when then they could help us kind of refine that call. So, yeah, it, for us anyway, it wasn't uh, specific. When you were talking, when we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned that sometimes the most effective thing to do in cross cultural missions is just go be there. Is what you said, say like Mac. You said that you were maybe just go be grandparents. I didn't know what you meant, but mm-hmm. now I do. So there's there's like another mission couple over there with kids. 
and you're going to just kind of go be whatever do whatever we have to do to keep them on the field and so what are you doing <laughs> i mean what what kind of stuff does that entail oh well that's a lot of fun things like you can bake cookies with them you can babysit them while their parents get a night out which normally they wouldn't uh do that and keeps their marriage strong keeps them able to live there um we make um, pizza on Fridays. make pizza together we take them to the park uh, yeah, so that's a lot of fun because we don't have grandkids yet, and uh, that's it's been really wonderful. That is really awesome. I mean, that, that's even more outside my understanding of missions than being an engineer, <laughs> right? Like, I could actually just go be grandparents. I mean, how many grandparents are listening to this right now? I know y'all are out there. Get Start doing something effective, like quick counting seashells or whatever you're doing. All right, I'll stay. I better tame it down. Uh, so tell a few stories or couple, whatever. I mean, what's the Lord doing in Kashmir? Well, we, I'd like to share about the, the man with secrets. So this, we take a walk every single day and you, it's a long walk. And that's how we meet. Time out a second. Describe the terrain, like where you're living. Are you in a city? Are you out we're, in the sticks? Yeah, we're what? in a city. Mm-hmm. We're in a city of 1.3 million people. Biggest city we've ever lived in. Yeah. It's a lake surrounded by the city, surrounded by mountains. So we're in a valley. Um, but it gives lots of nice areas to walk. We're just a five-minute walk from actually shooting up the mountain. And um, so we sometimes shoot up the mountain, but more often we're kind of in the middle. Too old for that. (laughs) (laughs) And we take these long walks, and we meet people. They are so hospitable. Uh, The culture is extremely warm and friendly. They invite us in for tea. And strangers, total strangers. Yeah, Kashmir is northern India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you said culturally a little bit closer to Pakistan. Yes, yeah, than yeah, I would India. Say so. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I keep interrupting. No, fine. No, fine. Yeah. So when we're on our walks, uh, one day we were on our walk, and this man noticed us, and he he greeted us, and then he just said, "Do you know the secrets of Jesus?" And we were, of course, slightly shocked, but tried not to show it. And then we just uh, said, yeah, we know the secrets of Jesus. And so uh, he, he invited us into his home, and we sit on the floor. We drink some salt tea together, um, and we start having conversations with him. And he said, yeah, I know, like, the moms, they don't like us to ask questions about Jesus. They're, they're hmm. not telling us everything about him. Hmm. And so we would, have, we would meet with him week after week after week. And then one day he told us this story, uh, how the Holy Spirit actually had been preparing his heart from 17 years ago. And he said, oh, one day I was just walking along and I saw a sign and I couldn't believe everybody was just rushing past this sign because obviously it was very important what was written on it. And he said, so I just stood there and memorized it. And he said, and the sign said, um, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Hmm. And then he said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and This so, is like within an hour of meeting this guy? Uh, no, this is after a couple of weeks. Yeah, he, he, okay. he, got, he got to know us a little bit. And okay. we'd been there a few times before he gave that part of the story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that wasn't an opening, huh? So you think he recognized you as a foreigner and maybe somebody who would know about Jesus? Yes, definitely. Right. He did ask us, are you Christians? He yeah, said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and again, that's the assumption, is if you're there and, and you uh, look like, uh, like you're American, then you must be a Christian. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it was... Uh, so the Lord's at work in the craziest ways. Uh-huh. Like, where, where was this sign? What was that about? It was at a... Actually, a, there's, it's a graveyard in Srinagar. And uh, it's, there's a couple of schools that were started by Christian missionaries back in the, the turn of the century, actually. And so um, the, it's, it's a graveyard for those people. And, and on, the, on the gate of it is in iron letters, is Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he just, yeah, he couldn't go past that without saying there, there's something to this. But, but imagine now, he's self-taught in English. And so, I mean, that resurrection word, I'm pretty sure he didn't have a, a clue as to what that was. And yet, for 17 years, he kept that rolling around in his head. 17 years. <laughs> so it's not like he just saw this last week. Mm-mm, mm-mm. No. Yeah, wow. and so there has been a Christian presence in this area for a long time. But... Um, Really, there is no church meeting of the Kashmiri people no. yet. There's a handful no. of believers. So how how does that play out? So you, you still in touch with him? Yes. Oh right. yeah. In fact, yeah, right. Because of uh, WhatsApp, we're able to to send messages back and, and forth. So are, is he still asking questions about Jesus? Mm-hmm. And when he says, "Do you know the secrets of Jesus?" What he what, what's he saying? He was saying because he knows that Jesus is mentioned in the Quran many places but he says the, the imams never tell us about that so he's saying they're keeping it secret and, yeah. and he's right <laughs> they are mm-hmm. keeping it secret because they see him as a prophet in fact the perfect prophet hmm. um, the the Quran says so but anyway he's saying that they don't tell us anything about Jesus and yet here you know here's a sign What's going on there with the imams? Are, are they staying away from the perfect prophet because it's also oh. the competitive religion oh of America yeah, that is like trying to take our oil or something? Or? <laughs> I suppose that's what it is. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure, though, they're threatened by it, yes. And so it's like we're going to underteach this because if we actually teach it, it might open the door to people believing that Jesus is the Messiah? I don't know if they'd be so hmm, kind of pre... I don't know if they'd be... That calculated. Well, yeah, that calculated. But right. I think Satan uses their definitely. fears and their... No, no, definitely yeah, Satan keep... uses it there. I was going to ask that next question, which is spiritually, what's your hypothesis on what's going on like in the spiritual realm? Uh, whether it's in Kashmir or whether it's in the world, the Muslim world? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, Satan is a deceiver. And that's where he's keeping... The, the things hidden from from people. Yeah, you just you hear this call to prayer, which is what the imam shouts over the loudspeaker five times a day. Um, and you just want them instead to be able to hear the voice of, you know, truth, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, I think about our one friend after his um, mother died, you know, we, we were at the funeral or at, after the funeral at the home just visiting and you know he just says yeah we don't know what's going to happen we don't know if she did enough good in this life hmm. we don't know where she'll be and so that causes you know some pain in my heart mm-hmm. uh you know and so they have a certain amount of the truth but they don't mm-hmm. have the the uh, revealed truth of jesus and you know it just makes your heart so sad. So mm-hmm. there's definitely this spiritual battle. Yeah. It's interesting because when we did Evangelism Explosion, we'd go knock on doors of Americans who were in Christian church within the last month or so. 
and you would ask them if you were to die tonight, uh, do you think you'd go to heaven? They'd say, I hope so. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, if you were to die tonight, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And their answer, eighty-five percent of the experiences I had was, and these are church people in America who are not unreached to use the old term. They're reached. They've heard the gospel. They've been, Jesus is all over the place here. They would say, I've tried to be a good person. And so that same lie manifests itself. And I just say to anyone listening to this podcast right now, like that's not the answer. The answer is you can't be good enough to earn salvation. The only way you can earn salvation is through faith in Christ. And it's not really earned, it's given. And uh, the righteousness that Christ lived, the perfection that he lived on this earth is available to a Muslim in Kashmir or an American right here. Um, And you need to know Christ before you take your last breath. So that's the gospel, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the gospel. What I want to do to wrap this up, and I didn't give you a heads up on this, but (laughs) I I would imagine, I, I just want each of you to pray as you would for what's going on in Kashmir or for what's going on in Nepal in the wake of you being there decades ago. And, um, I mean, this isn't a fabricated manufactured kind of showy type thing, but, um, I was going to ask you, what can people pray for? But then I thought maybe it'd just be better to have you pray and people can kind of follow that model. So I don't know how, can we get both of you to pray? Sure. Before we do that, you got anything, Joe? Nope. Thanks for letting me sit in. It's been awesome. Hadn't it? Yeah. Really awesome. Yep. Okay, well then let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good. We acknowledge that you are good and and so you have your um you are you have your plans. You you are planning to uh bring about this full redemption and and we pray that um that we uh, can be uh, a part of it. That we can um uh, work alongside what you're already doing, and especially in in Kashmir, where it seems that there is uh, so much uh, darkness and and uh, and just a lack of of uh, awareness of what you've done for for us uh, through through Jesus. Um, and yet, Lord, there's such a great uh, respect for you and uh, and an acknowledgement that you exist, which is so much a uh, 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 improvement on, on much of the world these these days, Lord, that you are uh, that you exist, and so we pray, Lord, that through our uh, opportunities to share, through relationships, just as you have revealed yourself in relationship to us, uh, that we would be able to take these opportunities that we have and make you known that. Uh, that our relationship would not hinder people coming to know you, but would be uh, inviting and uh, and showing uh, how very good you are. And we do pray for those few believers uh, that are in Kashmir, the, for the struggles and, and tensions that they feel in everyday life, um, that you would be their strength, that you would um, be the, the way that they... Um, are able to to cope, but more than that, Lord, that uh, that you would also be 
uh, making them into uh, salt and light for their neighbors and for their families and and the people that they come in contact with. We Lord, we really do pray for uh, your uh, body, your church, to be established there, so that there would be uh, an encouragement for these believers, and that there would be. Um, uh, leadership that would, uh, again, uh, help them th- uh, through these uh, difficult times uh, to, uh, to make you known. And, uh, and so we pray that all in Jesus' name. And Father, I, I thank you so much for each person um, who is listening to this. Um, I thank you, Father, that you want to use all of us um, to speak your truth, to share what you've done in our lives and what what Jesus uh, wants to show himself to be in their lives. Um, Father, I pray that you will help all of us to be praying um, for your kingdom to grow throughout the world. May we be welcomers for people of other nations who live nearby. May we continue to learn from your word and, and to grow in our faith. Um, May we send people out from among our fellowships and congregations. And, and there are some people you want to be going cross-culturally or overseas further away. And I pray, Father, that they would hear um, that call on their heart and on their lives and be willing to do that. Um, it's such a joy and a privilege. It's such an honor to be able to see um, your Holy Spirit at work and see people come to know Jesus mm-hmm. as Savior and Lord. And we thank you for that privilege, and we pray that um, you will continue that work in and through all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much. That prayer reminded remind me of one thing. Just let me share, uh, because of our connection with Nepal. Nepalis, it's still a poor country, and so Nepalis are going all over the world to work in Saudi and to work in Kashmir and, and India and different parts. Um, but there, there's so many uh, now... Nepali Christians, and they're actually, uh, they are sharing the word wherever they go. Cross-cultural missions Uh from Nepal. From Nepal. They're the maids for people in Singapore, or they're the um, helpers for people in Saudi Arabia. uh, Like nannies? Yeah. Wow. The cooks. And and just, and laborers too. And they're sharing their faith there. Yep. So, kind of a cool Remarkable what the Lord Mm-hmm. does and how he works it all out yeah and it's kind of daunting to realize he doesn't really need us you know what i mean like mm-hmm. he's going to do his thing right he uses us we get to be part of his work but it's not like matt reister somehow indispensable here mm-hmm. right. right yeah right. thanks a lot guys thank yeah, you thanks matt I'm glad to go through this The CC Podcast is part of Christian Crusaders Radio and Internet Ministry, started in 1936 and is one of America's longest-running radio ministries. We are 100% donor-funded, and donations to our ministry are 100% tax-deductible. So if you are encouraged, challenged, or inspired by today's conversation, please consider making a donation on our website, christiancrusaders.org, or mail a check to Christian Crusaders, 7401 University Avenue, Cedar Falls, Iowa, 50613. In addition to our other podcasts, which I mentioned at the front of this episode, I want to mention two of our other ministry partners worth checking out. First, the Cedar Falls Bible Conference, equipping believers with the truth of God's word since 1922. Visit cedarfallsbibleconference.com for free access to previous conference content or for more information about upcoming events. 
second is Power to Change Digital Strategies, an online ministry partnering volunteer Christian mentors with people around the world searching the internet for answers. If you or someone you know could benefit from an anonymous online conversation with a caring Christian adult, go to issuesiface.com. Or if you would like to be a volunteer Christian mentor, please visit p2cdigital.com. That's the letter P, the number two, and the letter C, digital.com. See our episode notes for details and links. And remember to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and write a review. God's richest blessings to you. And thanks again for listening.